morning, Emmaus. We are in John 13 this morning, beginning in verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not every one, not every one was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Amen. If you would just remain standing as we pray together. In the way that Jesus taught us to pray, he taught his disciples, let's pray that prayer together. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. John chapter 13. We are... In the last 24 hours of the earthly life of Jesus Christ. In 24 hours, he will be crucified on a cross. In John chapter 13, perhaps well-known passage to you, Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And the first time that I encountered foot washing, I was 18 years old, and I had just given my life to Jesus a year previous and joined our church's ministry school. And during the course of that year, our leader uh, for one week of the school took all of us up to uh, Mount Bachelor there in Bend, Oregon for a week of snowboarding. And every night after we'd snowboarded all day and were super tired, got home, ate some dinner back at the cabin, and then we would have a time of worship, Bible study, and, and spiritual time together. Um, the last night of our trip to Bend, Oregon, our leader, um, when we arrived home after dinner, I noticed there were all these salad bowls pulled from the cupboards, full with, full with warm water and stacks of towels. I had no idea what was about to come upon me. And uh, then our leader, he opened up to John chapter 13, 
and began to teach the story that we just read about Jesus washing his disciples' feet. And suddenly I started to think, I, I think I see where this is going. And when he got to the part in John's gospel in this story where Jesus said, I, being your teacher, have done this, so you ought to do as I have done, he instructed us that we were all about to wash each other's feet. Now keep in mind, this is like 30 to 40 guys that have been snowboarding for a week, and some of them with questionable hygiene. Um, And I'm thinking, there is no way in the world I want to participate in touching the feet of anybody in this room. I barely want to wash my own feet. I do not want to get involved with another dude's toe jam. Um, And so uh, they started pairing up who you were going to do this uh, foot washing endeavor with, and they partnered me up with the craziest dude in our school, Ned Houston. And Ned was from Sparks, Nevada, so he basically was raised by Las Vegas. Uh, man, he was the craziest dude maybe I've ever met. Some of you here might compete with him. Um, but Ned uh, basically had come from a super gnarly past, depraved past of drugs and sex and rock and roll, the whole thing. And uh, now Jesus had radically saved him, but the drugs had left him a little loopy. And so uh, that might have explained part of his craziness, uh, aside from genetic stuff as well. Um, so I get partnered up with him, and Ned wasn't one of the guys that showered regularly either. And so uh, all I remember from the experience is that um, Ned's feet going in the water, me holding my breath, and lots of toe lint floating around in the water, and thinking, I don't know if I want to stick my feet in the water after Ned's feet have gone in. I don't think they're getting cleaner that way. Uh, So we get through it, you know, and it's kind of a traumatic experience. Um, And so at this time, we're going to have the elders come forward with bowls of water and uh, start taking your shoes off right now. No, I'm just kidding. Um, But for for hundreds of years, actually, in the church, um, during Lent on Maundy Thursday, and if you're not familiar with Maundy Thursday, it comes from a Latin word which means mandate or it's a command. That is the command that Jesus gave to his disciples to wash feet. And so for much of the church on Maundy Thursday uh, during Lent, they celebrate the foot washing where the priest will actually take several from the community and wash their feet. I don't think this is what it looked like though when Jesus did it in the first century. But for a lot of the church, that is how they lean into this John 13 passage. But the question for us this morning Is this what Jesus meant when he said, I've set you an example that you should do as I have done? Did he literally mean that we should wash each other's feet? And while I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with the act of foot washing, I can see some merit to it. Um, I would suggest to you that this is not what Jesus meant when he commanded us in John 13, his disciples in particular, to participate in this act of foot washing or serving one another in this way. And there are a couple reasons why I would say this is probably not the most accurate way to obey Jesus' command in John 13. First of all, foot washing served a purpose in Jesus' day that it no longer serves today. Most of you showered before you got here. You have socks and shoes on. If you're wearing open-toed shoes, you probably did not walk here through dirt and dung on roads uh, that are dusty. Um, So that's probably part of the story is that really what Jesus did here had a very practical uh, service that was necessary for that day, which no longer is important for us today in this way. Second of all, Jesus uses the foot washing as a metaphor for a deeper meaning. 
And so we're going to look at the deeper meaning of foot washing and what I believe Jesus indicated that it symbolized this morning. So let's consider, though, the context of what's happening at the table where Jesus washes his disciples' feet. If you uh, turn back uh, to Luke 22 or write down some notes, in Luke chapter 22, we find a little bit of context or backstory uh, to what's happening in this upper room. Essentially, maybe you know this or don't know this, Jesus and his disciples borrowed a stranger's house to celebrate this final uh, upper room discourse that Jesus has with his disciples. And Luke chapter 22, verse 6, or excuse me, verse 8 tells us this is how it happened. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. He replied, verse 10, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters. Kind of interesting way to figure out where you're going to meet. Follow the guy with the jar of water on his head. And say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. So, just keep this in mind, they are in a borrowed room in a house that they do not own to a man who's a relative stranger. Now, typically, the host of a home would have on duty a slave who was responsible for taking care of washing the feet of the guests because it was very important in that day, again, uh, as people were walking either barefoot or open-toed sandals uh, with mud and dirt and uh, animal feces everywhere on the streets their feet would be filthy and so the first thing you would have to do when you walked into the home just as an act of courtesy was to wash your feet to have your feet washed and uh, it's especially important because in that day unlike the way that we typically eat the tables were very different I don't know how many of you have seen the classic painting of course you have uh, da Vinci's painting of the last supper Um, that's not what it looked like when Jesus sat down with his disciples to eat. The feet were really close to the table. And so the idea would be like, man, I I do not want to smell your feet while I'm trying to eat this hummus and pita and chicken. I am not interested in in foot smells. And so in that day, rather than sitting on high back chairs at a table where you could stick your feet under the table, even if they were stanky, you were laying at the table. And so it looked more like this, where your feet are there exposed and maybe uh, a few guys are... Uh, smelling some bad smells in the room with the the feet in the air. Um, But that said, um, in the borrowed room that they were using, there was no slave on duty to do the foot washing. This was something that one of the 12 disciples would have had to take initiative toward, to say, I guess I'll be the one who takes care of everybody's stinky feet. Or there should have been some initiation. But nobody in the room wanted to deal with the most obvious problem in the room and that is who's going to deal with this very lowly chore of the washing of the feet of these stinky feet disciples and so um it's not only that that what is what was going on before jesus washed feet but on top of that luke chapter 22 tells us verse 24 that the disciples were arguing over which of them was the greatest and so They're proud, they're boasting, and it's into that dinner environment that Jesus takes off his outer garment, basically strips down to his boxers, puts a towel around his waist, and takes up a water basin and begins to go around the table, 
to everyone's feet at the very lowly position and wash their feet there at that table and that sacred act of love that Jesus shows. And here's what I want us to consider about the humble servant Jesus and the example that he left for us. So there's a couple things about Jesus the humble servant that I think are important to remember as we seek to mimic the way of Jesus and the way we live our lives. First of all, notice that he serves motivated by love. His service was motivated by love. Again, verse one, Jesus knew that his hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. If you're gonna be God's servant, you cannot effectively be God's servant if you do not have God's love. God's love is essential for serving over the long haul. If you're gonna serve people, you know that people are going to disappoint you, they're gonna hurt you, they're going to do things against you that will offend you, and without the love of God, you will not be able to endure in serving others, in marriage, in raising children. Can a parent say amen? Um, without the supernatural imposed love of God upon you. Now it's interesting because right after we're told that Jesus loved his disciples and he went down to do this humble act of washing their feet, the next thing that we're told is that Satan filled Judas' heart and Judas was getting prepared to betray Jesus. And so in the backdrop, you have Jesus here washing feet and all along going on in the heart of Judas is betrayal. And we know that from this place, Judas will rise, leave this room and go out into the night to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And according to Exodus chapter 21, verse 32, 30 pieces of silver was the price you would pay if your ox had gored another man's slave and killed that slave, you would reimburse them for their loss with 30 pieces of silver. That's the value that the religious system and Judas put on Jesus' life, 30 pieces of silver. And we are also told that the very night that Jesus was arrested, Matthew chapter 26, verse 56, that all of Jesus' disciples would run away from him. And yet the Bible says he loved them to the end, knowing that Peter would deny, that Judas would betray, that all would abandon him. Jesus continued in the way of love. He loved these proud, stinky feeted betrayers, deniers, non-loyal followers, because the love in which Jesus exercised is the Greek word, as we know it, agape. If you haven't had the chance, um, I would recommend if you're a reader, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Four Loves. And he explains the four different types of love in the Greek language, essentially saying that we have one word to describe everything that we call love. I love hot dogs. I love, you know, my favorite sports team, the Seattle Seahawks or whatever. Um, and I love my wife and I love God. And so love has been sort of uh, used in so many different contexts. The Greeks had four words for our one word. And the word that Jesus uses here is the highest word, the highest form of love. It is agape. Agape love is unconditional, sacrificial, and selfless love. It's a love 
that loves without expecting anything in return. It's a love that keeps on giving and giving no matter if it's received or reciprocated. Most of our loves are conditional. Agape love, God's love, is unconditional. It means that he loves you when you're betraying him and he loves you when you're like John, leaning on his breast. He loves you to, as Jesus said about his disciples, he loved them to the end. In other words, when God sets his love upon you, it is everlasting and unconditional and a forever kind of love. No matter what you do, God's relentless love is only always there for you. Can the church say amen to the love of God? Being loved by God in this sort of way, Jesus shows us that the way to serve is by love. You can only give that love, though, if you are living in that kind of love. You can only unconditionally agape love somebody who hurts you, who doesn't treat you well, who doesn't reciprocate love. You can continue to serve your fellow man only when the love of God has come upon you. And and from that place of being loved by God, you can then distribute the love of God. But live without love and you will not be able to serve on your own human motivation. We need the love of God to so grab a hold of our hearts that we may love people the way that Jesus loves us. And so just remember the way the humble servanthood, the way that Jesus loved was a love without conditions. And it's the only way that we can go forward. So the Bible says in Romans chapter five, verse eight, about his love, God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while our feet were stinky, while we were betraying and non-loyal and not walking in a way that pleased God, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Or as Eugene Peterson translates it in the message, he presented himself for this sacrificial death when we were far too weak and rebellious to do anything to get ourselves ready. God's love is the love in which when it's overtaken a person, you can then love from that place. Oh, may God help anybody here who has not been able to receive God's love today. May God just show you through the demonstration of his own dear son's life that he loves you, that he loves you to the end, that he loves you like he loved his disciples, that he would wash the feet of people that would cause him pain and not be loyal to him. So Jesus' love and servanthood was motivated again by love. Secondly, we learn from the servanthood of Jesus, number two, that he serves from a place of confidence. And I really want this to get down into the spirit uh, of each person here. Notice Jesus serves from this place. It says, verse three, before Jesus had gone up to begin to wash feet, Jesus knew, this is what Jesus knew. This is what you should know. He knew that the Father had put all things under his power. And that he had come from God and was returning to God. So Jesus knew, I have Father's power. I was sent by Father. And after my death, I will return to my Father. And from that place of confidence, he was able to humble himself and serve these proud disciples at the table. Think of what your life could be lived like through the kind of confidence that Jesus possessed. If you believed about yourself, I know a couple of things. Number one, I've been empowered by the Holy Spirit to live this life. 
I've been sent by the Father with a calling and gifting to impact change in the world. And then when this life is over, I will return to my Father. That's all things that most of us would go, yeah. But we don't live out of that place of confidence saying, I am empowered by the Holy Spirit, sent by Father, and when this life is over, I will return to my Father again. Father will receive me, Father has sent me, and he gives me power to do the things that he's called me to do in this life. Now, I don't know how many of you on a scale of one to 10, how you would rate yourself on your Christ confidence levels. But I believe one of the things we need in Jesus' church is servants who are motivated by love and go out with confidence. That, that say, not, now I'm not talking about that self-assured, proud confidence that you possess in yourself. I'm talking about a God-centered confidence. The kind of confidence where Paul could say in a bragging sort of way, I can do all things, I'm confident, through Christ who gives me the strength to do those things. I'm empowered by the Holy Spirit, sent by the Father, and at the end of the day, I will return to Father. Therefore, I am invincible because I am the righteousness of God in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. The Bible wants a confident community of saints to walk in the world in a way that we believe at our core that the Holy Spirit's power is in us, that Jesus Christ has sent us in the world to be his love agents to our fellow man, and that no matter what happens while you live this life, by the power of the Holy Spirit and sent by the Father, you are gonna return to your Father again, and he's going to say, well done, good, faithful servant. Come, enter into my rest. Enter into the joy that is before you. And I believe that one of our callings at Emmaus is to help shape men and women who are confident in who they are in Jesus. Confidence and arrogance, they can go you know, real close together, but there is a, there's a gigantic difference between confidence and arrogance. Arrogance is you think you're too sexy for your shirt and you walk around like you're something based on your genetics, based on your natural giftings or whatever. But confidence is to say, like David, by my God, I can leap over a wall and run through a troop. By my God. See, that's not arrogant. That's confident. When, when David says to the giant, the Philistine giant, that he's going to take off his head in the name of Yahweh God, that's different than saying, I'm bad. I can do this. I'm it. All of us can possess confidence should possess confidence. Jesus walked in the kind of confidence that it says before he stooped down to wash his disciples' feet, he knew a few things. He had been, all things had been put under his power by the Father. He was sent by the Father and he would return to the Father again. That's how you love people who don't love you back because you're confident in who you are. That's how you can do things that would typically scare you and intimidate you because you know who you are. You can go out with the love of Christ and face rejection, face potential shame or humiliation because you're walking from a place of confidence. And, and may God make us a people who instill confidence in one another. God-centered confidence. May we all be a 10 on the scale of Christ's confidence. And that happens by speaking over one another 
One of the values that we hold at Emmaus is we like to know you so well that we know the lies that, that, that often take you down. What the devil's saying, what you say to yourself, and what your past has said to you. And we want to deconstruct those lies and we then want to fill you up with Christ's confidence and identity and who you are. And to be able to say as Jesus, go out with the power of the Holy Spirit sent by the Father and knowing that no matter what happens, you'll return to him. And so at that, what can't we do? What can't a group of people do who believe what Jesus knew about himself? And Jesus said, you are my righteousness because I have given it to you. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. These are lessons from Jesus, the humble servant. He served motivated by love and he served from a place of confidence. But I want to finish the foot washing uh, talk going back to the foot washing basin itself. Because Jesus comes to Peter with the bowl and the towel. And as you see, Peter did not want to receive it. So Jesus has washed maybe a few of the disciples' feet. When he comes to Peter, Peter says, Lord, would you wash my feet? He says, Peter, you don't understand what I'm doing right now, but you're going to understand it later. And he says, no, Lord, you will never wash my feet. Now that's a pretty powerful statement. That's Peter, right? He's all in. He's all or nothing. And so he just says, no, never, ever will you wash my feet. Peter needed it. Someone should have done it for him. But he's too proud to allow his master to be his foot washer. And Jesus says a rather severe statement in response to Peter telling him no. Verse 8, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And this is what gives me the idea that this severe response indicates that the act that Jesus was doing had more to do with something spiritual than the physical. And so Peter, as usual, hearing, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me, he overreaches. And he goes, okay then, if that be the case, not just my feet, but my hands and my head and my whole body, Jesus, give me a bath. Give me a sponge bath right here, right now. And Jesus is like, hold on, Peter. And notice what he says. You don't need a sponge bath. You've already been bathed. Verse 10, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is cleaned. Now, obviously, Jesus is speaking about something more than the physical act of washing. Actually, it's interesting in the Old Testament, when a priest was being consecrated for their office. So this is a one-time deal. In Exodus chapter 29, verse 4, the priests, when, as they were entering into the office, were to be washed head to toe. They were, they were to be completely bathed in their consecration act. But that would never happen again. We would call that like equivalent to baptism, full immersion, um, as they were beginning their ministry. But during the course of a priest's office, Exodus chapter 30 says that as they were in their office of priests, slaying animals, dealing with sin, um, getting dirty, getting messy, they were commanded that they were to regularly, before they were to enter into the tabernacle, wash their hands and feet. And so what we're, we're seeing here is um, Jesus says it to the apostle Peter. We see it in the priest that there's a difference between the whole bath and then the foot washing. There's salvation, that is water baptism, that is full immersion, you give your life to Jesus. That's not something you should do more than once. If you did it from your heart, every time you goof up in life, you don't need to return back to the baptismal tank. You used to have a guy, we called him the repeat offender. 
He, our church, uh, in the summertime uh, in Oregon, they would baptize every Sunday. And so, you, you know, you'd be, and, and there were seasons where there was just long lines of people getting in line. And there was one guy I particularly knew, and I knew the way he was living, and he would get in line all the time to get baptized. And the, I remember there was like, I think it was the third time I had stood in line with him to kind of pray with him. I said, this is the last time, man. <laughs> like, uh, you can't just keep doing this because you're, you're making kind of a mockery out of this act. But I understood the heart behind it. It was because he felt dirty because of the lifestyle he had been living. He had walked away from a way that was pleasing to God and he felt ashamed and dirty and he thought the closest thing I can do to get clean is to get in that water again and have that, that thrilling experience of being new in the Lord. And that's kind of essentially what Peter is saying. Well, then rebaptize me. And Jesus is saying, you don't need to be rebaptized. This isn't salvation, this is sanctification. Sanctification is the process by which God, through the Holy Spirit, makes us more like Jesus. To sanctify our lives is that we are cleansed in areas in our lives that we're continuing to struggle, and this is more of a regular thing. And so the question then becomes, if, Brian, what you're saying, and if it's true, and you're fine, it's fine if you want to disagree with me, that's okay. Um, you can have your opinion on this. But if, Brian, what you're saying, Jesus didn't intend for us to necessarily actually wash feet, then what does it mean that Jesus washes our feet and that we are to wash one another's feet. Is this limited to the first century where Jesus was specifically only speaking his, to his disciples? Is this something um, that we should fully lean into and do foot washings? How does Jesus wash our feet? Well, I would suggest to you that the New Testament speaks of the believer's foot washing. How many of you have been water baptized? Okay, if you haven't been, We'd love to baptize you, so come see me, and we'll do a water baptism. Um, we'll take you out to a lake somewhere and dunk you. Um, but if, if, uh, if you've been baptized, how many of you since your baptism have lived a perfect life? Yeah, right here. Alex, he looks like Jesus, so apparently if you grow a beard like that, you can live a perfect life. Um, but most of us, the honest people in the room, would say, yeah, I, I, I got water baptized, and, uh, and then the, the next week of my life was some of the worst days of my life. Um, and so what do we do when, when we've fully given our lives to Christ and then old sin patterns creep back into our lives? Well, the believer's foot washing, I believe, comes to us in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. The Apostle John writing says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. And what? Purify us from all un." righteousness a follower of jesus receives fresh cleansing foot washing purity when we've walked in a way that's unpleasing to the lord through confession now this greek word confession in first john chapter 1 verse 9 is an important word is the word homo logeo homo is the same logeo is to say so confession is essentially to say what god is saying about the things that you're doing so confession is to come to God and say, here's what I've been living in and I know God that you say it's wrong and so I'm agreeing with you that this is not the way I should be living my life. I confess that to you. And the Bible says when we do that, we are purified. He forgives us and cleanses us from all of our unrighteous acts. And this is a commandment. James chapter five tells us Verse 16, confess your sins to each other 
and pray for each other so that you may be healed. But most followers of Jesus do not have a spiritual practice of regular rhythms of confession. And confession is foot washing. Confession is a way to be purified. Confession is what you do when you feel filthy and you say, oh God, I was water baptized, so like Peter, I don't need a sponge bath, but I still need my feet cleaned. Do we take out the, 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 the water bowls? Well, maybe not necessarily, but there is a place for believer's confession. And, and, and for many people, 1 John 1, 9 is, is your, your go-to. You say, okay, I'll go to communion. I'll, I'll bow my knee at my bed in prayer and I'll tell God everything I did. But we don't like the, the James chapter 5, verse 16 version of confession. That's confessing your faults one to another. The one anothering of confession is uncomfortable for us because that's the area where we allow ourselves to be vulnerable and authentic with one another. And again, a value for Emmaus is we, we are calling people into living authentic lives. And authentic lives, authentic community is where there are maybe a handful of people who I've been transparent with and they know the, the struggles that I have and the confessions that I need to make and, and I know their stuff. And we have this mutuality between us. You can't do that with everybody. But I'm convinced that everybody needs somebody, a one somebody or a two somebody. If you're married, it could be your spouse, but it should be your spouse and. Because, you know, Shannon needs to know what she needs to know. But then she just probably just wants to have me, have somebody else help me out for once. It's too heavy of a load. Please, go tell someone who's not married to you about your problems. And... We all need somebody. In our war against loneliness, we believe in friendship. We believe in the kind of community that if you had your back against a wall, there are at least one or two people that you could call into the ugliest period of your life and say, brother, sister, this is what's happening. My life is just really in a tough place, would you come and be with me in this moment? I need to confess where I'm at. I need to confess what I'm doing and done and how I've been living my life. If you don't have those people in your life, may God link you here. Let us come alongside of you. May you build in gospel friendships, the kind of men and women that you can say, I am completely and totally honest with this person. They know where I'm struggling and so I can obey James 5 verse 16. I can obey 1 John 1 verse 9. It, it, because Jesus says it so strongly. He says, if you don't, you don't have part with me. That's how important confession is. It isn't like, well, if you're one of those really open people. You know, people tell me that all the time. Brian, you're just one of those really open people. Your heart is on your sleeve. You just say it all. But even if you're not an open person, you don't get a dodge here. Do you have people that know you? Are you living an authentic life? Do you regularly practice confession? Before God, for sure. Father, forgive me for I've sinned in this way specifically. God, change me. And he says, John, 1 John 1.9, it promises that he will forgive and purify you from all unrighteousness. There's a guarantee that confession works. But do I have this regular rhythm of confession, not only to God, but to the one another side of it? And that's the other part of this text. 
Not only do we receive foot washing from Jesus when we confess our sins, but he then asks us to wash one another's feet. Again, verse 14, I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet. You also should wash one another's feet. What does it mean to wash another brother or sister's feet? Well, I don't think you could get closer to New Testament Christianity than this statement by Paul in Galatians 1. Galatians 6, excuse me, verses 1 and 2. Listen and look at these words. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, they're not living in the way of Jesus. They're walking and their feet have become dirty. You who live by the Spirit should restore. It's about restoration. This word restore is a powerful word. It's like resetting a bone after it's been broken. It's a very gentle thing. Brother or sisters caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently and also watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. Either tempted to think you're better or tempted in the same way that your brother or sister is tempted, but watch yourself that you don't be tempted in pride or sin. And then Paul says, carry each other's burdens and in this way you fulfill the law of Christ. There are times when we need to learn how to get in the dirt with each other. You who care about each other, you who believe that you are your brother and sister's keeper, if you see someone caught up in a sin, I mean, like sin has got them by the throat, the jugular, there, there's, there's a wolf on their neck. And you see that, you who live by the way of the Spirit should come and seek to restore gently that brother or sister, considering yourself taking the foot washing position, coming low and humble and meek and saying, brother, sister, I see that you're snagged here and I'm no better than you. You may be caught in this, I've been caught in the other. And you come humbly before your brother and sister and you get into the dirt with them. You get into their dirt and you begin to apply God's love and his kindness to that situation where your brother or sister has been overtaken in the fall. But also, Galatians tells us that we are to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. It's not only the sin, but it's the burdens that we carry. Your brothers and sisters at various times in life will be caught in sin and burdens. And it's at those times where Jesus says, go wash the feet of those who are in your life, especially when you've noticed it. Have you ever wondered why there was something brought to your attention about somebody else? You didn't want to know it. You didn't need to know it, but somehow you know it. And now with what you know, you have a responsibility. Jesus says, I'm your master and teacher. I got in the dirt with you. Now go get in the dirt with each other and let other people get in the dirt with you. And there are times when you have been privy to something about somebody, something that they're going through, something that they're caught in sin or a burden that they're carrying and you become privy to that information and now you have this calling from Jesus. Do as I have taught you. Be as I was to you. Be as I am to you. Be the example. Follow my example. Get down in the dirt with each other and wash feet. And confession is a sacred task. It's a difficult task. It's a pride-assaulting task. It's a spiritual, spiritual practice and it's necessary for spiritual health and wholeness. How I would pray for our church community that we would be people who learn to regularly practice confession that we have friendships 
that if you have to come undone, if everything's just going a wrong way and you need to talk to somebody, you've got several people. And I would suggest to you, can I just make the suggestion, if they don't live near you, they're probably not your best confession partner. You need people that are in your life. Hey, I've got people that I call all the time that I appreciate and they are in my corner, but it's different to have physical presence. I want to read this to you as we finish this morning and we go into a time of worship and communion. Uh, David Gusick, a pastor, uh, Calvary Chapel pastor, um, wrote this about foot washing and I thought it might be worth pointing out and reading. If we were going to wash one another's feet, we should be careful of the temperature of the water. Sometimes we try to wash someone with our water too hot or too fervent and zealous. Sometimes our water's too cold. We're cold and distant in heart to them. The temperature needs to be in the middle. We should also remember that we cannot dry clean someone else's feet. Jesus washed us with the washing of water by the word, Ephesians 5.26. We should use the same water in ministering to others.